All right, church, if you all would go ahead and open up your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 6. We have uh, no time to waste this morning. We're finishing up chapter 6 and going all the way through the end of chapter 7. So, very uh, lengthy passage for us this morning. So you all can find a Bible under the seats in front of you, under you, behind you. Uh, if there's a Bible there, feel free to grab it and open it up. Um, we're not going to have uh, the main scripture up on the screen. We'll have some of our cross-references uh, will pop up there from time to time. So grab a Bible. If you don't have a scripture journal, you can find uh, those in the cafe. That's our gift to you. Uh, we've talked about it. There's scripture on one page and then uh, a page dedicated for your note-taking. And we're wrapping up our first stint in Acts this morning. Uh, we started... It's been a, a few months anyways now, and we started in chapter 1. We love expository preaching here at New Hill Church. Started chapter 1, verse by verse, all the way uh, to where we're going to end today at the end of chapter 7. We're going to take a short break, got a standalone sermon next Sunday, uh, July 4th. Maybe you guys can guess what the topic will be. Maybe you can't. We'll find out next week when you're here at 10 a.m., right? Um, and then we'll have a, a mini-series, and then we'll find our way back to Acts at, at some point, because we're going to go through the entire book Pastor Gary uh, preached last Sunday, thank you for that brother, and, and went through the first seven verses dealing with the, the first deacons of the church, and, and one of those guys we're going to really expound on uh, what little bit we know about him um, up to the point of his death. I mean, Stephen's story is, is very short, uh, his sermon's long, the sermon that we're going to read from chapter 7 is the longest sermon recorded in uh, the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, but it, it, it's a very encouraging passage. It's convicting, of course, every time I open up the Scriptures. I don't know about you all. I would assume so, but um, we feel conviction. We feel ways that we can change, and it's because we're fighting uh, with our, the, the Spirit um, and our flesh is, is at this waging war uh, for us to be conformed into uh, God's likeness, into the likeness of Christ, our Savior. But before we dive into this, this lengthy passage, let's just be in an attitude of prayer, and, and I, I pray that you all be praying with me throughout this message that we would see the importance of this word, uh, not only from, from Stephen, but also the actions of Stephen and, and how we, the church, um, and followers of Christ today should be engaging in biblical confrontation, which we'll get into, but let's be in an attitude of prayer. Father God, thank you for this morning, and, and thank you for this time that we could um, be with one another, that we could fellowship with one another, that we could turn to your word, that we could sing praise um, and exalt the name of Jesus, our Lord. And I pray right now that, that your spirit would just move inside of us as individuals, but collectively as, as a body, as, as the, the bride of Christ. Lord, that, we, that we, would, we would be seeking to glorify you, that we'd be seeking to, to correct our hearts, God, by your spirit inside of us, God, that we would be conformed into your likeness, that we would be changed by your word, which is truth. And Lord, as we are changed, God, I pray that we would, we would go out and be a light, that we would go out and be the mouth to proclaim the good news, and not just the gospel, but everything that the gospel affects of our everyday life. And Lord, that we would not be afraid of biblical confrontation. So Lord, lead us and guide us in your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we look at this, this passage, what I really want us to, to see, uh, what, what Stephen is dealing with and going through, uh, this main point of engage in biblical confrontation. 
Stephen, uh, so that's the main point, engage in biblical confrontation. But, but Stephen is, is really an interesting piece and, and, and a turning point right before the church is just scattered um, here in, in just a little bit. They, they've gone from um, being disliked uh, to being beaten, threatened, uh, right? Like they, they were beat up, the apostles were beat up, and they counted a joy. What a joy that we were just beat up, that we could suffer with Christ, Right? And then Stephen's the turning point where, you know, like Stephen's that guy, he makes them mad enough where they actually kill him. If you know this story, if you don't, we're going to find out here real quick how it quickly turned for uh, Stephen. But what we see is that, that Stephen recognizes the problem. He sees that there's an issue, and it's an issue outside of the church, but within God's supposed people, right? The, the, the covenant people of God from the Old Testament, the old covenant people. But he quickly corrects this. And it should encourage us today as, as we think about our neighbors and our community and, and even spiritual leaders in our town that your pastors have met up with to tell them that, that they're not preaching the gospel, that they may open this up you know, once a quarter in their, their worship experiences, but, but they're not actually teaching the gospel. And the reason we find this important is because the gospel changes everything. God has revealed himself and revealed everything for us through his very word. Amen, church? So when, when we hear people speaking blasphemous words, it should upset us. Now, it should upset us to the point where we actually confront it. That's why the main point is engage in biblical confrontation and not just engage in confrontation because it's fun. Like, how many of you all like, just wake up every morning and you're like, I cannot wait to confront somebody or something? Aside from Pastor Gary, we got one, yeah? All right. You and Gary are friends, so I know I, this is. Yeah. Mark's back there as red as he can be. He looks like, yeah, he, you can see that. He wants to raise his hand, but he's, Rose has him pinched, so just don't raise your hand, Mark. But we. No one really like, is like, excited, like, I cannot wait to confront people and get in an argument today. Now, you do have brothers here who, when they're like, yeah, me, what they're saying is, I want to correct people so that they can better understand God. That's what these men are saying. We totally understand that. But as Christians, we need to, like, we need to understand when is the time to confront people. Like I just, we, we came back from a vacation, and, and if you talk to Aubrey, you know, and, and even myself, like, it was a vacation, but it was, a, it was one with my family, right? Like my mom and my dad and my siblings, my, my stepdad anyways, not dad and stepdad, my mom and my stepdad, clarify, because if either my stepdad or my dad hear that, yeah, anyway. So it was with everybody, we had, you know, the family was there, and I was telling someone that, and they're like, yeah, it's almost, you probably need a vacation from your vacation, Right? I'm like, yeah, it's a good point. Because as a kid, the last time I vacationed with them, I was a child. And it's like, yeah, you know, we're all just throwing like Nerf footballs in the pool, pegging one another, cannonballing, like, you know, doing whatever we can to just be crazy kids. But now we've grown up and we've chosen different paths, whether it be career paths, whether it be like our spiritual path, like what we're following, what we believe, different political paths. We're, we're, we're being conformed into some image or some likeness. And it was a reminder this week that, that there are things that are worth confronting and there are things that are not worth confronting for the sake of unity within our family, right? Like mom would like kill me if I confronted everything that I wanted to confront this past week. 
But as Christians, it's imperative for us to understand today that, that we do need to engage in biblical confrontation, especially when the church has sat back for years and years believing in this separation of, of church and state um, and, and certain areas that, that we're not allowed to speak up anymore. Now, we believe, we believe that there's, there's a reason for that. We believe uh, that the separation of church and state has, has been twisted a little bit. But the church was never told to lose their voice. Believers were never told to, to stop talking. Believers were never told, especially from the Bible, that we're not supposed to tell our neighbors who Jesus is and how Jesus tells us we should live. Amen? Amen. But for some reason, we don't like that confrontation, whether it be like fear of persecution, whether it be just disobedience, whatever it might be. But Stephen shows us the importance of engaging in biblical confrontation. Uh, other epistles, especially from Paul, uh, command us to engage in biblical confrontation. But as we look at this, I want to look at the way Stephen engages in this confrontation. And that's uh, by a bridge and by a break, right? Two points to support engaging in biblical confrontation. Build a bridge and then break their bridge. So bridge and break. Just two basic points. And before we dive into Acts, I want to read one scripture for us. First Peter 3, 14, and 15. If you spent any time in church, you've probably heard this verse, but it's very important to understand this as we start to look at how Peter, uh, or how Stephen addresses um, these folks. Peter writes, he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But, if, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now, Pastor Gary's leading this apologetics class so that we can give a defense for our faith to each topic, right? Each Sunday's a standalone, and we're talking about that so that we can give a defense for our faith. But Peter makes it clear. He says, yet, so do it. That's not a question. But he says, yet do it with gentleness and and respect. So look at let's let's look specifically at the very end of chapter six and see what Stephen is dealing with. Picking up in verse eight, and Stephen, full of grace and power, again one of the the, the uh, seven chosen to the office of uh, the diaconite. It says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians. And those of Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Like what an in intense moment, almost like a, a moment. You're going to see lots of similarities in, in Jesus' final days and, and even like looking at the transfiguration, you hear, you see his, his face is almost like an angel. It, it, it's crazy, but but Stephen's doing what the church is supposed to be doing, specifically in the office of uh, being a deacon. He's serving. He's serving uh, those who had been neglected that Pastor Gary hit on last week, uh, and, and he's caring for them um, in a Christ-like way. 
And as he's doing this, they get mad. He's, he's teaching the truth. But we look here in, in verse 13, and this is, this is where Stephen sees the issue. He sees exactly what their dispute is, and then he's going to bridge the gap to Christ. He doesn't begin to argue. He doesn't, he doesn't point a finger and yell at them. Right? Like we're we're going to look, and actually the, the tone is pretty chill. Right? The, the Bible, there are times where it's like, it's not chill. There, there's times where Paul's getting a point across when he's like using words like anathema, right? Like let them be accursed, right? Like pretty much saying like they can go, go to hell, right? Is what he's saying. There are times where it's like that. But Stephen is, it, it, as it says earlier, he's full of grace and power. But then he's at this issue that they're lying, saying that this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. Pretty much against the land and against the law. Now, you're talking about the temple and about Jerusalem and, and saying that Stephen is speaking against this place and he's speaking against the law. And they go on. He, he's trying to change the customs that Moses delivered. And he says that Jesus is going to destroy this place. Stephen could have righteous anger. He could be full of righteous anger at this moment. As the high priest questions him in verse 1 of chapter 7, says, are these things so? It's pretty reasonable to ask this question. Like, if we hear somebody in our town speaking blasphemous words or we hear something through the grapevine, we meet up with them. I heard you said this. Is this true? And Stephen says, brothers and fathers, hear me. It's really important to stop here before we really, really get going and understand how he's addressing them. If we're going to build a bridge, right? if we're going to go and evangelize and get people from, from this side of, of damnation and to understand salvation by grace alone through faith alone, then we must approach them the way that Stephen does. Could be angry in a righteous way, could be aggravated, could be yelling, and, and, and get away with it without sinning. But he says, brothers and fathers... Hear me. Stephen doesn't want this to become, to get out of hand, right? Stephen doesn't want it to go sideways. He's wanting to teach them and correct them. Now church, if we want to see people come to know the Savior that saved us from our depravity, then we must do it the way that our Savior saved us, with grace and with mercy, but with sternness and boldness. Stephen doesn't back down. Stephen's no chump in this passage. But he dresses them in such a way that he wants them to listen. You don't go up to someone and say, hey, jerk, listen to this, and expect them like, okay, go ahead. It doesn't go that way. But he addresses them. Brothers and fathers, hear me. And then we get an Old Testament survey that he's going to connect the dots. Oh, you, you think I've got a problem with the land and with, against the, the, the things that Moses laid out for us. Let me, let me explain to you the Old Testament, and let me link it in. Let me bridge the gap to Jesus. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 
400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Now this is important. Stephen is building his case based off of their false accusations. He is building his case based off of their false belief. Now these were supposed to be God's covenant people. But it was, it was quickly turning to what Stephen's going to get to in the breaking point, that, that their heart wasn't circumcised. But he is, he is doing this Old Testament survey. They don't think he knows it. Stephen wasn't supposed to know it based off of his heritage. This was not supposed to be a, a scholar of any kind compared to the, the council that he's standing before. Yet he is giving them this overview of the Old Testament and bridging it in to Jesus. He goes all the way back to Abraham into the Abrahamic covenant where there's this blessing of land and of people and that the world would be blessed through his people. There's this, this uh, circumcision, right, where we see that God's people, they stand out. There's something different. And he's going down the line. And he's doing it in a way that he's trying to bridge their false belief over to Jesus. He's given a defense for his faith, and he is establishing the gospel from the very beginning. That Jesus wasn't an afterthought, but he's teaching them that it's always been about Jesus. You think Stephen is the one that's wrong. Indeed, you all are the ones who are wrong. That's what he's saying. So he's, he's walking them through. It says in verse 9, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made, known, made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they carried back to Shechem and laid uh, in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But, at the time, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own. And Moses was instructed in all wisdom, in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. Church, follow with me for a second. I know this is a lengthy part, but very, very important for us to understand. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were uh, quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wrongdoing his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? 
Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became a father of two sons. Now when he is 40 now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire and a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And he, as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them and now I will send you to Egypt. I'm going to pause here for a second. Part of their problem was that, that Stephen was speaking about this place. But what Scripture teaches us is that it's not about a place, it's not about confining God to a building, and it's not about confining God to any land. That God cannot be confined, and that God is with us wherever we are. Now, this is not a, a sermon, this is not a message to get into uh, the view of Israel, whether the land still matters, whether it's still part of the promise, whether we're a part of the promise. That's not what this morning is about. But this morning, looking at this Scripture, what this Scripture is dealing with is the dispute that arose against Stephen and what he was teaching, where they said this man does not stop to talk about, speak against this holy place and the law. But we look, were they in Jerusalem yet? No. He's giving them an Old Testament survey where he's moving through and he's talking about how, how God was, was with Joseph in, in Egypt. Even though he was sold, even what the song we sang this morning, even what the enemy means for evil, God uses it for our good and for his glory. Amen, church? So that's what's happening. And we're moving through and we're seeing exactly what's going on, that God has been with his people. He was with Abraham before the land was even promised. He was with his people always. He's with us today. He's with us Right now, if we're believers, we, we go back to the beginning of Acts and the pouring out of the Spirit dwelling inside of all those who believe. So the same God that lives inside of you, if indeed you've repented and believed in the Gospel, lives inside of you and lives inside of every believer. But we see, what's he, what's he say to Moses when they're outside of Egypt? Take off your sandals, for this is holy ground. And they weren't yet in the promised land. And see, they're, they're so fixated, the, the council, on this idea of land and of keeping God in this temple and, and, and keeping God confined and making God just this image of this God that we wish He would be when God's Word has revealed exactly who He is and exactly how we should view Him and exactly how we should worship Him and see Him and fear Him. But we see this, this moving through of the Old Testament Scriptures that Stephen is building his case. You think that I'm distorting the law of Moses? You think I'm, I'm speaking against this land? But let me explain to you God's redemptive plan from Genesis all the way up until everything that we're speaking now that will be written later. Let me explain it to you. And then Moses, in verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, not Jerusalem, and at the Red Sea outside of Jerusalem, and in the wilderness for 40 years. So God is not confined to any land or any property that we have or any beautiful building and temple that we can build. This Moses 
This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Speaking of Jesus. That there would come one being Jesus that would be raised up. That would go and, and pay the penalty for his people. They think he's got it wrong, but, but Stephen's saying you all have had it twisted all along because that's never been God's plan. This has been God's plan all along. God didn't have to make a U-turn because he went the wrong way. God didn't have to make a U-turn because we went the wrong way. God had a plan, and he had a plan all along, and his plan's going to be seen all the way through past the day of judgment. For all of eternity, God's plan will be revealed to us. He's saying, He's with us. And He's going to send Jesus to be among us. God incarnate. That He'll be with us. He'll walk with us. Emmanuel. They, they should have understood that God was always with them and they, that God was not confined. Emmanuel. Look at names in the Bible. That they, they matter. Emmanuel. What's that mean? God with us. Or with us is God. God is literally dwelling with His people. And in the New Covenant, dwelling in His people, making each of us a temple. Man. This is a good word from Stephen. He says, this is the one in verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Here's a turning point. He says, our fathers refused to obey. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us as for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol. And they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Now again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and I could keep going on for the rest of this message until it's lunchtime and just keep saying again and again because God continually sent prophets to turn His people so that they would repent and turn back to the holy way of living that God had called them to and saved them to. They were covenant people, but they were not living covenant. They were circumcising their children on the eighth day, but not living or doing anything for God. To the point where after being enslaved to Egypt for 400 years, they're out of it. But they'd rather go back. Instead of being free, instead of being free to worship and go about and, and long for the promise of the land and long for the promise of, of prosperity as far as God's people being able to worship freely, they would rather go back and be enslaved. To the point, Moses is, is, is trying to lead them and point them to this, and they're thrusting him aside. We don't, Moses went off the deep end, is what they're saying. But he didn't. They were just never following God. They were following an image that they had made. Case in point, they build a calf and they worship it. But God, in verse 42, turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifice during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Malak and the star of your god Rephan and the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, directed him, as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it 
in with Joshua when they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house do you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is this place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Now, this is important. It's not that God doesn't want our worship. It's not that, that you can't build something in, in honor of God. But when we, when we see that, that God has to fit into these images, that, that this is the only way things are going to work, and we distort and we twist Scripture, then we're no longer following God. We're following evil spirits and demons. And that's what they were doing. They were trying to always build up these things for the Most High without ever following or believing or having circumcision of the heart that was changed by the Most High. Paul deals with this in, in Acts 17, verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, we can do things and build things to honor God. But God is not confined by it. God is not held by it. God is the creator of all things. Now, now go back to, to 17-year-old Michael. I got my Pontiac Sunfire, my O2 Pontiac Sunfire when I was 17. Thing was sweet, right? If you still have that car, that's totally fine. Because this isn't going to change the illustration. There's no knock on anybody. But I've got this car at 17. It's sweet. Now imagine you're driving like brand new Cadillac. It's like really cool. It's like got the Wi-Fi in it. I'm like, hey, why don't you take my Pontiac Sunfire for a whip? Throw you the keys. And I'm like, that's cool, right? And they're like, I drive a Cadillac. Like, you've got an O2 Pontiac Sunfire, Michael. Like, and believe me, I've been there. Like, I, th I thought that thing was cool, especially with the subwoofers in the back, like rattled and like going down the street and whatnot. I thought it was awesome. But there's, there's something about, about what's going on here and confining God when God is, is the one who spoke everything into existence. We could, we could build anything and think, that's amazing. God, like, you have to enjoy it. Get, it. get into that box. We want you to be in there, and then we'll open up and like, how you doing in there, God? But God has spoken everything into existence. He's been with His people since the beginning of existence. He's dwelt among His people, and He will dwell with us forever if indeed we are believers. Amen? That's good news for us. And Stephen is pointing them to this. Now, the important thing is, is, is you have to build this bridge before the breaking can come. Now, imagine there's these two guys. They've stumbled upon a massive river. And the one man is, is building a, a nice bridge. It's solid. It's made of concrete. It could take a semi across this river. And he looks down and he sees old Michael Meadows just trying to build with sticks to try and get across this river. And believe me, that's the kind of thing I would do. And he looks down and he sees this guy. He's never going to get across the river. He's building with sticks. How crazy the structure is not going to be sound. He's going to float off or he's going to get ripped away in the current and drown. We've got to stop him. Now imagine this guy 
even though it's wrong, even though it's a horrible idea to build a bridge with little sticks to get across a massive river, imagine after all that effort, I take a grenade, and the best way I'm going to get him over to my bridge is just chuck this grenade into his. And it blows up. I know my reaction would be the turn, and without even caring about the bridge that he threw it from, without caring about the fact that I could get across it, I'm going to be really mad that he did not invite me or tell me or teach me about his bridge. Because I just spent all this time working on with sticks to try and get across this river. I had no idea that there was another way. I had no idea there was another possible opportunity that was before me. But this guy chucks a grenade and blows up my false bridge. Now take it into the reality of our evangelism, how we're throwing spiritual grenades without ever engaging or building a bridge from their false belief into the one true gospel. We do it all the time. All right, you don't believe in the Trinity? Let me chuck this grenade in there. I'm not going to explain to you that there's a better way. I'm just going to just make you mad and hope that you find your way over to mine. No, that's a way to get into a fight or an argument, an unhealthy one. But if we want to engage in biblical confrontation, we build that bridge, we invite them to the bridge, we show them the bridge, we say, hey, look at this bridge. That's going to get you from your damnation across this river to your salvation. Through grace alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, who is the foundation of this bridge. And then, as you've drawn them in, as you've showed them the one true way, doesn't mean they're going to love you, doesn't mean you still won't argue, but you're showing them and you're bridging that gap. Then you break down their false belief. Point number two. There has to be a time, church, where we, we tell them they're wrong. There has to become a time where we teach them that, that what they're following and, and what they're building and what they're hoping and longing in is wrong. Because, church, this isn't about whether or not you believe something's flat or round. It doesn't matter whether you believe we've ever gone to another planet. We're talking about your eternal life. And it doesn't just end. You're eternally somewhere forever. And if we believe that, then we should build that bridge, invite them in, and then tell them, break down why what they're following is wrong. So he's done this Old Testament survey. He's pointed to them uh, all the way back to Abraham, and he's pointed them all the way to Jesus. He told them that, that the people you all love, the prophets, right? They didn't even follow Moses. You all are acting like you follow our, our uh, spiritual grandfathers, but you don't. As he turns in verse 51, really kind, and then he gets to some harsh language. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, talking about Jesus, whom they have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Again, all along, prophet after prophet, calling God's people back to God. Calling God's people back to a holy way of living. To be holy as our God is holy. And he opens up there with you stiff-necked people. Now the English language, English language would have some really harsh words to use. 
I mean, this is, this is not the nicest thing you could say. But church, sometimes it calls for it. As you've built that bridge. Now imagine you go back and he opens up, the, with a, they have a simple question for him. They say, is, are these things so? And he says, you stiff-necked people probably wouldn't have made it as far as he did into the sermon. But God used him and full of grace and mercy, gentleness and respect and power, as it tells us about Stephen at the beginning of this chapter, He builds the bridge, and then he breaks it. And, and he even ties it into the, the, the idea of circumcision given to, to Abraham, that covenant. But he says, uncircumcised in heart and ears, which is actually an Old Testament thing anyways. That even though they were doing a physical circumcision, that there was actually a circumcision of the heart that showed where the real allegiance was. And Paul talks about it in Romans 2, verses 25-29. through 29. Church, we, we can do all the outward things. We can look good to the world. We can look good to our brothers and sisters. As pastors, we can look good to those who we co-labor with and co-pastor with. But Paul teaches us something about the heart. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes what? Uncircumcision. It's undone. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Church, this is, this is so, so, so important. That we begin to understand, even in our own life, looking at, at how we are living. And not that, not that you, you will reach a point where it's like you can stand before God and say, look at me. But that you can say, God, Look at me and know that I need you. And be changed and empowered by the Spirit that's been given to you, poured out to you at your salvation that is now empowering you and equipping you while the church is sending you, right? You're being empowered by the Spirit and gifted by the Spirit and equipped by the local church to go and live life on mission. And he's breaking down their false belief. And he's pinning it on them. Remember this, this reoccurring theme that, that you killed Jesus. You all did this. Pinning the blame of, of the, the death of Jesus on them. The blood is on their hands. And he does it again. He tells them. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth in him. They I don't know if you all have ever seen somebody get so mad where they, they clench their mouth, right? That's what they're doing. They're, they're gnashing their teeth. And, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And what he said next gets him killed. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Pointing them to Jesus. Bridging and breaking at the same time. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. 
And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So they hear him say these things, and like young children, if you all have ever been with, with a group of your children, we've got people with kids, lots of people with kids, we've got lots of people with lots of kids and at our church, and when you get those kids together, sometimes you've got to like rebuke them, but they're in a pack. So you've got to like, sometimes you just do it and just hope it turns out for the best, but like, if you all have ever been like with like a big group of kids, like when I did kids ministry, I'd be like, all right, guys, it's, it's time to stop playing. We've got to get ready. Your parents are getting ready to come get you. And I've seen them close their ears and run at me. Like, this has actually happened to me, like where I feared my life for three and four-year-olds. Like, I'm not in Stephen's position. And they just charge you, right, with all their, like, dodgeballs and baseball bats and scooters you've gotten out. And they, they begin to use these weapons that you've given to them. And what happens here is, is they don't want to hear it. As, as if closing your ears is going to, to make the truth just be nullified. Church, people can deny Jesus. Jesus is still king. People can choose not to glorify Him. God still deserves the glory. People can choose to do things opposite of Scripture, but Scripture is clear. What Scripture says, God's people do. And that's why it's important that we understand God's Word. We build a bridge and we break down false beliefs. We engage in biblical confrontation. Believe me, there are false teachers in our midst. They are in our communities. They are claiming the title of pastor. They are using the same word we preach from to twist and distort God's very word from God's very word. To, to push agendas like the LGBTQ community, where we have pastors in this town who want to use it and say, well, that's not what it means. And if you look at, at this and then the Greek, and it's like, no, even in the Greek, even in the Hebrew, even in Aramaic, it all says it. Now, church, I'm not getting after just the LGBTQ community. We have pastors, and, and we here in our flesh, we want to justify sins. And the way we do it, it's 2,000 years old. It's really not relevant. It's not as relevant. Points of it are relevant. Some of it's relevant. What I choose is relevant. Church, engage in biblical confrontation. Because what, what Stephen did, church, we may never see the fruit of our witness. We may never. You may share the gospel all your life. That doesn't mean you're bad at it. Just because you don't see the fruit. Look at what happened. There was a young man there. It says, the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now there's a man who's, who's young and is witnessing this, and his name is Saul. And because of Stephen's boldness to share the gospel, to bridge the gap, and to break down their tradition, which was built on false doctrine, a man named Saul heard it. And though he wasn't changed before Stephen died, though he wasn't changed immediately after, we see that Saul is changed forever. We see that later on, Saul is blinded by God. He is saved by God. He is dragged out and given over to the grace of God. That God has saved him and that the church forever has been blessed by God through Paul. I mean, seriously. Stephen gives this message, and Saul hears it. And then you, you all probably have like the little title right before chapter 8. Saul ravages the church. 
Church, we don't know who we're going to change. We don't know what we're going to do when we go out. But we're told to go out. And don't, don't be afraid of confrontation. Now pick and choose. If they're like, uh, I like the KJV. Uh, that's probably not confrontation I'd get into. Right? It's not worth it. Now you can have those conversations when you built a bridge. You can have conversations with anybody about anything. But we should not sit silent as God's word is blasphemed around our town and our ears and to our people. Because let me tell you something. There are people going out with false doctrines that are leading people to hell. And they're using the same book. So let us exhort people by the Word of God, through the Word of God, by the power of the Spirit living inside of us, engaging in biblical confrontation as we go out and bridge the gap to Christ and break false doctrines that are among us. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this morning as always. It's so good to just be back. God, You have blessed all creation with the church but you've tremendously blessed God, each and every person here with one another. I'm forever grateful for this church family and I pray, Lord, as we leave here today that we would dwell on your word, that we would delight in your word. God, because in it we find the source of life. Through it, we find the way that we are to live here in this life. The way that we are to go and to exalt Your name. The way we are to go and to proclaim Your Word. The way we are to go and to live in, in every area of our life, in every aspect, the way that we should be. So God, I, I pray that we would just draw near to You through Your Word this week. God, I, I pray that we, we wouldn't simply feel like we have to, to make it back to church to be in your presence. We need to be in church. It's a command. We get that. We need to, to be in the gathering and the assembly. We get that. If we don't, make it clear to whoever needs to hear that right now. But we also don't need to wait till next Sunday to worship you. We also don't need to wait until next Sunday to open up our Bibles or our phones. Wherever we read your word, we got pray that we would draw near to you as you've drawn near to us over and over, calling your people to yourself through the prophets, through the mouth of the prophets. Now, your word is complete. The canon is closed. So I pray that instead of demanding things from you, we would open up your word and go to you, seeing what you've laid out for us. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't do that alone, that we would, we would do life together, that we would disciple one another as your word has commanded us, that we would love one another as your word has commanded us, that we would correct one another as your word has commanded us. And in all things, God, that you would receive the glory. Pray that you would receive this last song as we lift up a joyful noise and, and, and praise of your great name as we confess these truths through these lyrics. God, that we believe your word. We believe in you, our triune God. We believe that your word is inerrant and we're going to follow it and we're going to teach it. We're going to love it and delight in it and be changed forever by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.